Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I discuss, and if you've noticed the background music, I'm sure you've already guessed it, George R.R. R. Martin's hit novel and HBO adapted series, Game of Thrones. More specifically, we take a deep dive into the continents of Westeros and Essos to talk about world building through the lens of assembling an army. After which, we jump right into the most recent episodes of Season 8 to discuss the show's finale. So, while this probably goes without mentioning, I'll just warn everyone up front that this entire conversation contains spoilers for pretty much the entire show. And I'm talking about all the big ones. Why the Night King's so serious. Where Bran gets those sweet winter blankets. And when will Hop High finally ask Arya out? But more seriously, everything you hear was recorded the morning before the penultimate episode, so be prepared for both spoilers and our own predictions for the final two episodes. Also, joining us again at the table is architectural designer and friend of the podcast, Sean Koenig. If you're interested in Sean's own work, check out our episode on world building called The Powers of Ten, or Sean's cinematography at Smoking Snowman Studios. So, from Washington, D.C., this is the Table Sessions podcast. Enjoy the show. That actually, that is kind That's of a weird, <laughs> quirky thing to start with. <laughs> that, is, that is. All right, so Sean, welcome back. Welcome, Sean. Welcome, hey. welcome back. Uh, welcome back to the uh, to the table. It's good to be back. Captain. Circular table. <laughs> it's a circular table. So today we're going to be talking about um, Game of Thrones. What's oh, that? You know the show. Okay. You've heard that, right? Mm-mm. No? Never heard that. So it's like... Uh, no, Lego the Thrones. <laughs> there's like, there's this throne and everybody really wants it. Mm. Is yeah. it comfortable? It's actually very uncomfortable. <laughs> why do they want it? <laughs> it's made out of a lot of swords. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why whoever has it looks very angry. Doesn't even mm. have a cup holder. No, not at all. I guess you could have a servant. Yeah, yeah. Upholder. yeah, he just the servant <laughs> servant lays down on the Game of Thrones, and you sit on the servant. That's how you keep everybody employed. Kind <laughs> yeah. yeah. have job creation here. Yeah. So, what I would love to do is start off actually talking, um, not jump into like the show yet, but actually just start off by just talking about this world, like any kind of fantasy story that puts a lot of thought into the geography and into um, the placemaking. Um, I think that's probably my favorite part of a lot of my childhood Mm -hmm. fantasy Mm -hmm. novels like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and uh, the the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. They also have like their map. Mm -hmm. But I I always think it's like so fun to think about where you're starting in the world and these characters actually like traversing real space Uh on a map. Um, And one of the things that I found that was really interesting about the Game of Thrones map is at the beginning of um, season one, the beginning of the first book, and even in the first couple interpretations of um, the the world itself, uh, you don't see a lot of Essos. So the Game of Thrones world is kind of broken up into these two continents, and there's there's more in the referenced, but mm-hmm. the two major continents being Westeros and, and Essos. And really, at the beginning of the book. Um, and the beginning of people's interpretations of this world, it's really just all of Westeros and then just the um, western beaches and the western cities of of Essos, and everything else is kind of alluded to. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's structured that way because that's really all we're really introduced to at the beginning of the books and and the show, this Mm -hmm. idea that 
Um, there are a medieval feudal structure. Westeros is kind of filled with the Seven Kingdoms, and um, Daenerys, her brother, and um, the Targaryen kingdom is has really been destroyed, and she's on this run um, across the Narrow Sea into Essos, and she's heading eastward. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything is kind of zoomed in to just Westeros and and the western beaches of Essos. But then as the book evolves and the seasons evolve, the seasons of the show evolve, uh, what you have is this reinterpretation of what Essos is. And if you look at all the different um, uh, graphic representations, and Ken and I, we've kind of talked about this mm-hmm. a lot, this seems to be one of the most graphically represented shows to ever exist. If you mm-hmm. just type in Game of Thrones infographics, yeah, there's, definitely. There's, there's just thousands of them. Uh-huh. And what's kind of beautiful about that is you see all these different reinterpretations of Westeros and especially these different reinterpretations of Essos. And what happens is as the book progresses and as the seasons of the show progress, you have more and more of Essos revealed. And at some point, um, the HBO show itself actually takes a hard stop for how much Essos Mm -hmm. is really revealed. It kind of only goes as far as um, Mm -hmm. uh, Karth, Mm -hmm. which is as far east as Daenerys. Uh, traverses Mm -hmm. in in the actual show but if you if you look at um uh independent interpretations by people who are pulling in information from the books Mm -hmm. and people who are making assumptions based off of referenced areas um you're seeing that esos is really this larger continent that's spanning way farther eastward than the show lets on uh, to the point where uh, the largest interpreted map I found um, really has a whole nother third of the continent out east um, and kind of reinterpreted the map itself um, in this graphic that I've been building mm. based off of this. But what you really see is the Seven Kingdoms in Westeros, Daenerys traversing about two-thirds or maybe even just like one half of Essos mm-hmm. and then you have these entire um, zones of land in eastern Essos mm-hmm. that are these referenced areas that people are starting to tangibly represent mm-hmm. and and there, there are places like um, uh, Danny traverses the red waste but there's also these references to this area called the gray waste which mm-hmm. is this larger area out to the um, far east and even south of the summer sea which is the ocean that's south of slavers bay mm-hmm. and if you're familiar with slavers bay that's um the kind of inlet that marine is located mm-hmm. on which is like the main seat of dinarius so everything south of marine slavers bay and the summer sea there's also these kind of reference continents of um sulfurios and um Althos, which are these um almost like jungle and African-esque um, mm-hmm. bi- bio areas. Um, but I think what is happening here, and I think this happens in a lot of um, 
fantasy novels and Mm -hmm. and exploratory narratives is we're seeing something very similar to the way vikings or early settlers explore land Mm -hmm. where the Mm -hmm. areas that you're very familiar with become very tightly represented Mm -hmm. uh, and are highly defined and the areas that you're less familiar with are more elongated um, more generic in nature mm-hmm. and um, even graphically uh, exaggerated because mm-hmm. they, they feel larger because you don't really understand the scope of them. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something beautiful about the fact that you have this highly orchestrated Westeros with these seven kingdoms and everything is completely locked down and there's these tiny little land grabs. And then there's this mystical world of Etho- uh, Essos where it's about getting lost in the wilderness, finding yourself, um, curating your own army. Danny's curating her own army, at, literally out of nothing. And at the same time, the land of Essos is this hyper-exaggerated wilderness, very similar to just the Vikings writing, um, this is where dragons live yeah. on, a, on a map. Mm-hmm. And, and even the definition of these places, you have some things like, uh, Pentos, and you have Marine, but then when you get east of that, it's just the red waste and the gray waste, and everything is very generic. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, I, I, in watching the show and kind of looking at the map, I think there's something very creative that Martin has done about the way that he's hyper-defined Westeros and then loosely defined Essos just enough that the entire subculture of the Game of Thrones community is now taking it upon themselves to extend the mystery of this kind of mm-hmm. Essos landscape out to the out to the east. Two, well, two thoughts. Um, can you talk? You talked a little bit about how this could reflect like the, the European identity between the British Isles and the Mediterranean, and even like this kind of top Moroccan African coast. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have we, has that like an actual purposeful thing, or is that just kind of a way to structure a world that obviously George R. R. Martin was kind of pulling from? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, was that a purposeful choice, or do you know? Is it was it just, it just kind of wind up that way? Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't do any research into um, Martin's conceptual agenda for how he structured this, but I think if you just look at the land masses, it's very clear that he is basing Westeros off of um, England mm-hmm. and and the feudal system and the division of statehoods and kingdoms, very similar to um, the King Arthur-esque uh, European... Um, feudal system Mm -hmm. and if you look at the geography of of um, feudal england you have essentially an an island kingdom Mm -hmm. um, uh, structure and then off of the coast of england or the main coast into into europe uh, you have the larger landmass of eurasia and i think there's a a I don't know if it was intentional or or it was something that subliminally made its way yeah. into the way he structured this. But I think what you what you're having is your ethos is really your Asia, where there's a lot of definition in areas like Germany and France and and um, maybe even the Netherlands. But you could really think about Eastern ethos as being Russia, India, Mongolian mm-hmm. um, era. And I would even say that like the Dothraki mm. are almost a reinterpretation of a Mongolian empire. <laughs> or an exact interpretation. Yeah. 
and you have essentially a um, a rejected queen or or a queen who's run out of England. Um, you have this queen that's kicked out of England, and then she has to go rally almost like a Mongolian tribe in this loosely defined Eurasian um, continent. So I guess that yeah. So what, what you're saying is kind of. Game of Thrones falls into this grand tradition of Western storytelling, whereas like the farther east things go, the more exotic they get. And then when you're the you know this very defined hyper you know hyper defined Westeros, like you're saying, is a very clear interpretation of it's an it's a it's a mental anchor for people that are from the from Western culture to understand the story through that lens, basically. Yes. And, and the other question I had was, you mentioned <clears throat> I don't know what Sean thinks about this either, since he's a a map maker as well. Did you do you think that? Um, George R. R. Martin had the entire map made before he started writing, at least like the big outlines, or he went west. I think you can interpret it both ways. I want to know what both of you guys think about that. I think like he maybe he has an idea, but he hasn't, you know, set it in stone. Just like he hasn't set the mysterious east in stone. I mean, if you look at the map in uh, Lord of the Rings too, you've got this mystical oriental exotic that's you know a throwback to the way it was referred to in these ancient medieval stories i mean there's this you know there's a charm to things being mysterious and undefined and things being able to come out of there and being other and alien and you know i know lord of the rings is pretty clear like what tolkien thought of Asians and Africans who all joined Sauron's army and marched mm. over there. Um, do we, do we, Sean, do you think that there's some kind of inversion to the West versus East map making technique from the Hobbit into game of Thrones? Because if we, if we look at um, the Lord of the Rings, we have the Hobbits and the land of the humans and the land of the elves really being on the, western refined side of the misty mountains Mm -hmm. and everything eastward is the other and is evil and what we have in game of thrones is really the refined westeros and then Daenerys really going out into what could be considered the evil unknown and she's really one of the potential saviors of the of the entire book so is there i'm almost seeing yeah martin does something different with it yeah um i mean he's you know giving these people personalities and stuff and i mean like gray worm and misande and uh you know kyle drogo eventually they all get some character development they they seem like decent people that we root for uh even though you know the first episode of this season when uh they're, when the Unsullied and all of them are marching to Winterfell, and all the Northerners are like, <laughs> I think I need to move out of the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, there's some smug looks there. Yeah. yeah. Well, the difference between Lord of the Rings, the, the march is like, they start in the Shire, and they march, and then it, it ends, you know, the big battle at the end. Yeah. And then they just come back to the Shire and, like, have a little moment at the, like, have a little happy, you know, well, the, the Green Dragon Tavern well, or whatever. Well, no, they come back, and Saruman's taken over the Shire when they're gone. Well, right. Well, but like and eventually they set things right. But. I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, in Game of Thrones, she it starts and ends in the West. So mm-hmm. she goes back, gets some stuff, and comes comes. It almost would be like right. it almost would be like if the end battle was at the Shire. So yeah. that's the difference, I think. So I want to I want to get back. So the, so you back think Game of Thrones, though yeah. with the map in the Game of Thrones map, you think that George R. R. Martin 
just started making it up as he went and, and it became elongated. And I, I think either way it could be right, right? Like maybe he had the entire outline made or maybe he just kept marching east on the map making as the, as the books went on. Like, what do you think? I, I think that, and once again, this is speculation, but I think that he unintentionally did something that actually works very much in his favor. And what it appears that he unintentionally did, or maybe he did and he's, he's a genius in some right in this <laughs> capacity, but what it appears is that he wrote a very detailed description of what Westeros is and then also loosely detailed um, a functioning Essos that allows Daenerys to have character development in Essos. But I don't think that he... For, for Westeros, with the exception of what's north of the wall, I think he defined 99% of it. For Essos, I think he actually only defined maybe 50%. And as the books are evolving, he's using the unknown of Essos as almost this, like, it's like a grab bag. He can create whatever he wants yeah. out there. Mm-hmm. Like he, he sculpted but, the mold for it, and now he's refining the sculpture. Like to, you know, a bit. Yeah, exactly. It's like... It's like um, uh, you're building a sculpture and you know what the head is going to look like, but you haven't decided what the body. Right. So you've just left a whole bunch of unrefined like stone underneath. Mm-hmm. And you're just basically saying, I'm going to make it up as, as I go. But I think the beauty of that is because not because he doesn't even know anything can come out of that unknown. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like map making and... It's, it's like the actual act of traversing an unknown land. You don't know what's out there. You are loosely defining it, and then things surprise you, and then you define it a little bit more. You can almost imagine, like, you know, say he finishes the books or gets a ghostwriter to finish them, and then another series comes out later, and, like, you could almost imagine a, the opposite interpretation, like, east to west. Like, it starts in Carth and Marine, and there's a really defined harbor, and then, like, Westeros is just this, like, big kind of op, like kind of shape that has a couple major harbors and like maybe there's a, a note for like king's landing but mm-hmm. those map makers like don't even so it's all about perspective right east to west or west right, to east yeah. right but the, obviously this story is told from that specific perspective and it's very purposeful yes mm-hmm. yeah so the other half of this conversation um if the first half is really about the structuring of this map as a way to reinforce this idea of the defined world versus the other and the unknown world. I think the other thing that I want to bring up with using this map is all the different interpretations of how the characters have physically traversed the map. And what I was really interested in was not every character, but really uh, Daenerys's uh, movement over the entire map, Mm -hmm. mostly because in this particular moment that we're in, um, about to go into the penultimate episode, uh, we have Daenerys, who uh, has just traversed all of Essos, arrived in Westeros, joined up with Jon Snow, uh, assembled a whole series of armies, and then um, has the bulk of her army basically ripped away from her through the Battle of um, Winterfell, fighting the Night King. And the most recent presentation of the two forces was Danny and Cersei at the gate, where they are doing one final um, plea for surrender. And um, ultimately, that doesn't happen. And you're faced with, now who's going to win this final battle between Danny's forces and Cersei's forces? 
And the way that the show represents it is Cersei is hiding behind or, or is fortified behind King's Landing with the entire forces of her army, these um, uh, crossbow trebuchets uh, up on the walls. And then Danny's forces are really represented as um, what look like, I don't know, like 100 men, 100 unsullied um, behind her. And it, and it caused me to ask the question, like, how many forces does she actually have? And, like, is that actually a real interpretation of her forces? Or is Danny putting on airs to make it seem like she's weaker than she is? And so using this map and, and the way she traversed it, um, and I actually sat down with Megan last night, and we calculated out. Um, Ooh, tell us. Tell us the forces. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I was looking at the mileage that Danny traversed over the entire map, and Megan was pulling up the the forces. But mm-hmm. uh, I was really interested in going from a singular person in um, Pantos in in Essos, mm-hmm. traversing all of Essos to Marine, the amount of forces that she assembled, then the trip over the Westeros, the battle at Winterfell, and then. Um, really just asking the question, how many forces does she have compared to Cersei at this mm-hmm. singular moment in time where the last battle is going to happen? Wow, that's pretty cool. And mm. so what what you see is over the... Um, uh, and there's only five books written right now. So what's actually interesting about assembling this information is for five books, the books are reinforcing the information projected by the show mm-hmm. after book five and into seasons six, seven, and eight. Mm-hmm. It's really just the show that's projecting these numbers. Right. And the interpretations become looser. And if you go on Reddit, people are arguing and people are getting very <laughs> self-righteous about what these actual numbers are. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm just going to kind of outrightly say this is just numbers that Megan and I chose based off of what seemed to be the loudest people yelling because mm, there's down to the single soldier. Yeah. So what, what we see is um, when, and we've broken this down in almost like risk like terms mm-hmm. where you have infantry, uh, uh, infantry, cavalry, artillery, armada, cause there's ships. Uh, and then what we're calling as uh, special forces and special forces are anything Dragons. like, um, yes, uh, Danny's dragons, or say like any of the main characters, like Jura, or um, what's uh, Danny's right hand woman, Masande. Masande, she would fall under special forces. So, if we look at from season one going forward, the beginning of the show is just Danny with her brother being sold to Cal Drogo, and when she becomes Cal Drogo's wife, she inherits essentially his army. And for what that represents is about 70,000 people, over um, 50,000 infantry, 20,000 cavalry, the, the um, Dothraki are horse riders. But really after season one, um, because Khal Drogo dies, mm-hmm. uh, she loses that inherited um, strength of his army. Mm-hmm. And especially because she needs to essentially use a boat to traverse some of the landscapes. Mm-hmm. So... They just don't have the ability to do that either. So she very quickly goes from 70,000 basically back down to about 100 <laughs> people who are kind of guarding her and, and helping her traverse this world. Then by season three, you see her start to assemble more people again. Uh, we have about 10,000 followers. Season four, we maintain about those 10,000 followers. 
Um, and then around season five or six, um, five and six, uh, you have her arriving in Marine. Mm-hmm. And with the acquisition of Marine, the, the slavers, um, uh, the, the slave trade that's there, mm-hmm. usurping the, the leadership in Marine, you have her reestablishing a huge number of uh, forces in Marine going all the way up to uh, 100,000 plus. And the 10,000 she got was the Unsullied before. Right. Yes. Grey Worm's army. Yes. Um, uh, the second sons were in there too. Second sons, yeah. Yes, exactly. So four, five, and six, she's like acquiring the Unsully and the second sons. And then at Marine, she is able to gain access to uh, a series of ships that traverse um, the sea over to Westeros. Mm-hmm. And by the time that we land in the, um, by the time that we arrive in Winterfell, and there's some battles that happen here. Basically, when she goes from Marine to Dragonstone, she uses Dragonstone as this kind of headquarters where she's doing all these micro attacks mm-hmm. in Westeros. But by the time that she ends up in Winterfell, she's basically retained this army of about 100,000 plus. It's like um, 128,000. But then what happens, and I'm, a vi- I'm, I'm kind of disturbed by this, mm. the... Because I'm not disturbed by the casualties. I'm disturbed by the flippancy of the casualties in Mm -hmm. the Battle of Winterfell. Because what you essentially see is she's spent seven seasons rallying 100,000-plus soldiers. She goes to the Battle of Winterfell, and in one 30-second move, the Army of the Undead wipes out all the Dothraki and then proceeds over... um, the remaining 50 minutes of the show to wipe out about half of the um, Unsullied and half of the Winter Fellian forces. Well, I thought that in the this episode just this past Sunday, they talked about um, every element of her forces being halved and what we could see in the distance uh, on that battlefield of them running in there with the flaming swords, like, some of those going extinguished were just them plunging them into dead people and not mm. not them being killed. Yeah, I've heard discrepancies about that too. Like it, originally, it seemed like they were literally all gone, but I think there's some there's some Dothraki yeah. left, but not many. Yeah, it's so, hard to know until they it's show hard it. to know. Yeah, it's just all speculation right now, right? Exactly. Right. And so I think this brings us to the the crux of the conversation, which is really how many forces we think Danny has mm. based on. Uh, uh, as opposed to how many forces we think Cersei has. So Cersei's forces are a very known force, and she's stayed pretty static throughout the whole thing because she's basically just walled herself up in in King's Landing. But Cersei has about 60,000. And if we look at the number that Danny has, Danny going into the Battle of Winterfell is somewhere between 120 and 130,000. So let's say that it was literally halved. Mm-hmm. If it was literally halved, she has exactly... Yeah. 60, 65. Mm-hmm. So she's completely paired with Cersei. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a one-to-one. Mm-hmm. So in the moment that we see Danny walking up to the wall with 100 soldiers looking very weak and very subordinate to Cersei's fortifications, we could, if we see this as a one-to-one, and we know that there's some hints of a one-to-one by the conversations of yeah. Varys and Tyrion, yeah. that it's coming awfully close at this mm-hmm. point. If we take a 50% cut and the conversation between Varus and uh, and uh, Tyrion, um, we can interpret that meeting as Danny trying to misrepresent the strength of her force as a way to trick Cersei into lowering her guard. 
But I think another interpretation of this is we have a um, a female leader going out the Essos to acquire an entire army from a unknown Eastern world, bringing this this whole group of other over to the refined world, and then the show very casually using the members of her army that are associated as the other as the front line and potentially wiping out the entire Dothraki force as a way to transition back into a traditional Westeros populace. So I, I, I'm, I'm reading this as like, what are the showrunners actually going to do? Are they just going to have it and like have the, um, the population and it's going to be a one-to-one with Cersei? Or are they going to use potentially a, like a, I don't know, like a devious moment to almost eradicate the entire Dothraki force as a way to allow Daenerys to reinterpret herself almost back into what would be considered like the refined Westeros. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know with that, like her showing up at the walls of King's Landing, whether that was just a poorly directed scene that they didn't CGI a lot of people into. And they said like, Jon Snow not patting Ghost on the head is like a CGI issue. Like, come on, dude. <laughs> like, it's... It, I mean, with the book, it's easier to estimate these things in some ways because here it's just, okay, in these particular shots, how many people are we going to put in here? I mean, it seems like it's going to be pretty evenly matched in terms of the armies themselves, but then there's the, you know, the X factors. I mean, the X factor of the dragons have been kind of neutralized. Um with these giant ass crossbows. Uh, I mean, you've got the X factors of the heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got, we don't know if there's still wildfire in the city. Um, then there's like all the civilians in King's Landing being used as human shields. Um, whoever cares about that. Which there are a million people. They, they, right. They always say there's a million people in the King's Landing. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, I know. I don't know like how many people are in the left in the northern army, like whether they're gonna pick up any remnant of the Tully army. Mm. Like there was some offhanded mention of Dorne. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. the that. new Prince of Dawn. Right. Who who even knows what's going I on? I think there. they have to bring them back. Like you'd you'd hope so, but they've got a limited amount of time. We'll see what happens. The idea of the heroes as X Factors is really interesting storytelling. Um mm-hmm. I also want to comment on the Dothraki thing you mentioned, but the idea like Okay, so you have John's John and um, in his retinue are marching south, mm-hmm. presumably slower than obviously slower than the dragon can, that can get there. But like, did like those hundred unsullied also get on the dragon like and fly down there? They're probably yeah. That's <laughs> okay. I think that's she has some, she has some ships left. I mean, it was the fleet that came down there with her. Yeah, well, it got destroyed. I mean, I thought it got destroyed, but like so. Oh, that's well. Yeah, we don't know because we only know what they show. Well, I guess it's like what I what I was noticing, but and it seemed like a very purposeful decision by the storytellers is like, you you basically isolate the heroes in prior to this penultimate, right? So you mm-hmm. send Arya and the Hound south. You send Jamie on his own mission. Mm-hmm. You send, um, you know, Tormund north. Who knows if he's actually going north? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have like all these. Okay, those are like these moments where you have the forces marching south and you have Cersei's forces there, right? So we know the forces are going to collide, mm-hmm. but the, the thing that's supposed to gain interest in the storytelling, which is actually a really effective method, I think, is sending the heroes on their own missions where they're going to jump in mm-hmm. and basically save someone's <clears throat> life or get killed or 
you're going to have the Kugain bull hound on the hound in the mountain going <laughs> at each other. <laughs> right. But you're basically, there's going to be, and that's how like getting into how you shoot a show or shoot a movie, you have the scenes where there's a thousand people running into each other. And then you have the minute long man on man. And then you have a minute or 30 seconds of people killing each other. Again, and then you have five seconds of man on man or woman mm-hmm. on woman or whatever it is. Right. So it's like they very purposely started these like unknown and like the Dornish, another example, like they might come up from the south and like they might pull a an eerie Battle of the Bastards thing mm-hmm. and help save like, you know, it's like, uh, so there's a lot of like, we the known factors, even if the known factors are are, are, are um, kind of evenly matched now, mm-hmm. what, what they're banking on as the surprise moments is all these singular and also other forces that could turn the tides. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're waiting there on the edge of our seat of, you know, is Dorn going to come? Is the river run forces, the Tullys, are they going to rise up? Is like, are mm-hmm. we going to get some of the northerners to come back down? Is ghost actually going to go north? Like, mm. we don't know. Or where's the Yara Greyjoy? And like, that's the kind of thing. And even though we can be critical about it, they're telling the story, that's the kind of thing that at least makes for a good battle and good story. And I think episode five, this pen- or episode, yeah, this penultimate episode, like, I think this episode has a real chance to like save the whole season. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if we can get into opinions yet. Yeah, um, but I'm but I'm wondering, is it going to be that it's a one to one, and maybe it is by the things that Varus and 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 Tyrion have mentioned. Is it going to be represented as a one to one battle where Danny potentially starts losing and these other forces come in? I think that's going to happen. Or is it going to be a true underdog where you have? 15,000 versus 60,000, like a one-fourth ratio. Mm. And then it's these other forces. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So you ha- you're you right. Do you have stalemate and then Danny turns the tides, or do you have underdog and somehow the underdog, with a little help, basically wins? Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I, I'm, I think I'm sitting in the same camp as you, that I think the strength of the episode is going to be the combination of the larger battle that's setting the tone and then all these moments where you have characters like Arya and the Hound having their individual story arc battles yeah. between the Hound and the Mountain and Arya and um, I don't who's she even after is Cer- she Cersei, Cersei? is it that <laughs> what it is she's okay. gonna sneak into King's Landing and kill Cersei who knows yeah that'd be too many wins in a row though you can't get yeah. a Night King and Cersei back to back to back so so maybe this would be a good time to transition into what you were looking at Sean with the alliances because I think what we're really talking about is this episode in one regard being this numbers game, mm-hmm. but in another regard being about all these moments between these characters yeah, that are happening. I guess a better word for what I was thinking about was trust. And I mean, that's going to be, even if they beat Cersei, that's going to be a major problem because Sansa wants an independent North and Daenerys obviously is, you know, wants to control everything because that's all she's ever been taught to want. Um, and John Snow's like, always tell the truth, even if it hurts. Oh, that was good. <laughs> yeah. God, you love the guy, but he's dumb. <laughs> um, I mean, trust has been a thing through the, throughout the whole show, this running, yeah, this running thing. Um, I mean, you've got, you know, these famous betrayals, Red Wedding and all these other backstabs that have happened, but you rewatch and you see the seeds of these things being planted and all these people not carefully cultivating their alliances Mm. and doing things that'll keep people on their side is what, you know, gets thousands of people killed. And I mean, sometimes it's, it's not like 
some leaders don't really dwell on the impact of their actions. They're just like, oh, I got my ass kicked or like, like, well, it's kind of your fault a little bit. Yeah. Like let's, let's sit, let's fly immediately to Dragonstone and not think about the fact that there's going to be a fleet waiting for us. Right. <laughs> like, right. Like, <laughs> I saw this video that was like, Danny forgot about the iron fleet. Like yeah. the showrunner talking about it. Then all these moments throughout the past two seasons that it's like, okay, she would obviously remember. Like <laughs> yeah. we lost these people to the iron fleet. Oh, these iron, the iron fleet ambushed us here. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. Like, come on. Some of it's out of sight, out of mind, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, in those moments, I, this is kind of getting the nitpicky things, but in those moments, why leave yourself open for criticism by making it a completely surprise attack? Like, Danny's flying in on a dragon. Mm-hmm. She obviously has the ability to scout out entire regions yeah. before people arrive. Why not make it to like a bisected fleet where one's sitting out in the open to draw the attention mm-hmm. so that when they like, because they know that the dragon's going to see it, mm-hmm. have one fleet that's about waving the right hand while mm-hmm. Euron's kind of sitting behind another strategic location. And he's like a singular ship that like fires at the dragon. Well, okay. So I want to go to like a mini soapbox and I want to know what Sean thinks of this, mm-hmm. but like, so I agree. Like, I think one of the main conversations that's happening around the show right now, and it's just the risk of sounding like we're complaining. I want to like actually make this brief. Um, like, do we want to see a show that just has great battle tacticians and everything is perfectly executed and that's the story? Or like, is are, are the store or the showrunners saying Danny is, has one side in mind and she's, she's impulsive potentially, or she has a lot on, she's a lot going on and she's just trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get to Cersei? And, you know, like for for instance, like she lost Jorah, and now she's just thinking about like she's in a specific mind space. So she's like, I'm gonna fly south, and she wouldn't. Maybe she wouldn't have thought about the Iron Fleet in that moment. Like, maybe she felt isolated in the north, and everyone was against her. And now she's like, screw this, I'm flying. And like, what if that's a true decision her character would have reasonably made in the timeline of the show? I think it potentially is okay that she forgot about the Iron Fleet, and, and her decision made her lose a dragon, and like. If the showrunners, if the showrunners made every single character like master generals, it wouldn't be true to those characters' natural kind of impulses. Yeah, right. Does it, that does that make? S- I get what you're saying. Um, there's something that could have still been true to her character. I agree. That it like, yeah. I was like, I don't know. I bum around the you know the discussion boards and whatnot, and someone said, okay, what if like the Iron Fleet attacks her fleet in that moment and she decides to take the dragons to dive bomb the fleet right at and then one of the, she loses one of the dragons in this moment of hubris versus it just like coming from off screen and like oh they came from behind a rock yeah i guess i i think there could have been a, a way to combine what her character would have reasonably done and a good battle plan right but that's just not what the showrunner shows and maybe it was the wrong decision yeah but like mistakes i guess mistakes especially in a, in a war-based show mistakes are part of the narrative Right, there's room for mistakes in the, like, tactically, but it's, like, even mistakes are going to have, you know, solid logic behind them. Yeah, so, like, the thing that... Are they? Do they always? Okay. (laughs) I mean, maybe not. I would compare, and we're talking about uh, Danny arriving at Dragonstone and and getting surprise attacked, Um, and I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but I'll compare that moment to, say, the Battle of the Bastards, mm-hmm. where they dedicate a scene to Stannis and John talking about their strategy. 
They arrive on Davos. The, Dav, Davos. Yeah, da, Stannis is dead. Oh, Stannis is dead. So we have we have they dedicate a scene to Davos and and John talking about their strategy, which is essentially to lure Ramsay in and then surround him mm-hmm. and and attack him, yeah. fl- flank him essentially. John arrives on the field. Suddenly, it's Rickon, right? Yeah, yeah. Rickon is presented in front of him, and John just throws the entire yeah. plan aside. Right, he was being impulsive, He's and being he very impulsive. and he was an emotional character in that moment. He yep. tried to save his brother, and like, yeah, and it was and, a mistake, and mm-hmm. tactically, it, yes. And so the character, there's there's a representation of the ideal. There's then the character throwing away the ideal and and humanizing them as mm-hmm. an impulsive character in mm-hmm. that moment. Um, and then you have the repercussion of that impulse mm-hmm. by the fact that Ramsey had the exact same attack plan yeah. and did a crescent uh, maneuver mm-hmm. and surrounded him on the other side. And then it, really the only reason they survived because Sansa stepped in with yeah. the, the outside forces. Mm-hmm. But okay. I, would, I would say that the show has, it doesn't have to be that complex but right. in but that, you're saying John had a plan and then he dropped the plan for a good reason, whereas Danny maybe didn't. They didn't give her a plan that was yeah. an acceptable yeah, plan I, to begin I, with. I think the showrunners in that particular instance, compared to the Battle of the Bastards, isn't setting themselves up for success, right. or or they are creating uh, they're they're accidentally creating opportunities to be criticized because they're not treating point. they're point. not treating that moment as um, what if. It took the approach of she's just distracted. It might be great then to see that we don't even show the outside of the ship. What if it's about Danny and Masanda in the cabin and they're arguing over the fact that Jorah just died for whatever reason. And then it's all about the character development between uh, uh, Danny and, and Masanda. Masanda? Masande. Masande. Like, we, we all know that Masande like, dies in the next scene. What if you create this tension that their last moment together was actually them arguing over the fact that George just died, create a lot of drama, and then the attack actually happens off screen. Mm-hmm. And and, it, and it's representing the fact that she was so distracted by being distraught, it opened herself up that way. Yeah. Or it was about bisecting the fleet yeah. or something like that. So I think, I think like this, what I'm seeing, I guess the thing that I'm being critical with the show is that the showrunners are either ignoring opportunities or missing opportunities Big time. To, to build depth yeah. in, there's a, in, like into yeah. these moments. There's also some like gender dynamics that goes in this. And all these boards talk about it too, or like how it's okay for John to be like an impulsive idiot, but when Danny's an impulsive idiot, it's like it's oh, that's what she would do. Women are impulsive. You know, like and when John does it, he's like a hero. And part of that actually is what like helps those characters play so well off each other is like mm-hmm the expectations of what a man would be and what a woman would be. They even talked mm-hmm. about it in last right. last episode, like explicitly, like mm-hmm. John's a man. Let's make him, let's make him the ruler. People would like that more. And, mm-hmm. and that, that also gets into the, the concept of the Dothraki um, charge before we get into what, I guess more what we were talking, me and Sean were talking about. Um, I, I also think it was, it's a shame that the Dothraki, you know, their whole, basically whole people or 75% or 50% of the people are wiped out for a foreign war that they didn't, you know, they're, they're so far from their homeland and then mm-hmm. they just got wasted basically. Oh, they got wasted. Huh. Um, but, but like, I, I also think it's important to note, even if that was a right or wrong move from the showrunner's perspective, 
The showrunners made that move because they believed it would be true to how that world would function, basically, right? So, like, in Westeros, a cutthroat, kind of feudal, family-based Western society, those generals most likely would have sacrificed those people first. Yes. And that's what they... And, they, mm-hmm. and I believe that the showrunners believe that the, they made the right decision because they did what was true to the world. Even if it's fucked up to send a whole race of people to die, the showrunners, like, don't... Just because they do that, it doesn't mean they think it's good. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people actually equate that. They think, oh, the showrunners don't care about like the Dothraki just because they killed him off. But they they were, and maybe they are rushing it, and maybe that was a bad move. I didn't think it was like you know. But people are saying that. I, you know, you're gonna yeah. say people are telling me. Uh, <laughs> people. Yeah. Um, I think it was just stupid tactics to put your cavalry up front. Oh, the whole thing. No, was no matter no matter who the they worst. are. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the whole argument was that like they do better in full speed running, and they just went. For, he's like, I mean, you put them on the sides or something, like yeah, just stand behind the walls of Winterfell. How about that? <laughs> I mean, it, well, like it made sense for the Northmen to be behind the walls because they're archers and stuff. Yeah. Um. But to like put them on either to like, you know, have trenches and Dothraki. I mean, unsullied with their spears, like as the first line of defense, and the Dothraki on either side of the castle, and sweep in once the army of the dead arrives. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll, I'll throw this out as maybe a second level of criticism for what I was saying earlier. Um, if we look at the Battle of Winterfell, where the Night King is attacking, first off, the structure of the way that these forces are set up makes absolutely no sense. Um, you have the city walls. Then outside of the city walls, you have a, a essentially a stake moat that is a bunch of sharpened stakes with kind of fire fuel set up in it steak moat yep <laughs> then outside then outside of the this staked moat steak is, boat. <laughs> yeah is sorry, the sorry. uh um the ballistics the the catapults mm-hmm. and then the dothraki or sorry then then the unsullied and then the dothraki out front okay first off why would you ever put your catapults outside of your moat defense if you were to dig that mm-hmm. so as, as just a structure it would make way more sense to have your your cannons behind your moat and then you could then organize your dothraki in small corridors very similar to like a 300 mm-hmm. technique that could like attack people as they were filtered through and then the unsullied you mean yeah it's unsullied yeah. and then the dothraki would be a, a left right swoop mm-hmm. okay so there's there's obviously at least from the threads that i read there's um, there's, there's a whole number of better ways that you could just structure these defenses. Mm-hmm. So what I actually think is going on isn't the fact that the showrunners and the characters of Winterfell just absolutely screwed up the structuring of this battle. I think it was done on purpose. I think what you have is Sansa looking at uh, Danny now um, fortifying herself within Winterfell with a 100,000 Dothraki force and Sansa asking herself in the background, which we don't see, how could I structure this battle in a way to very quickly <laughs> eradicate this outside force, then eradicate the Unsullied, and um, put all of the Winterfellians behind two levels of barracks? So when you get to the end of the battle, you have Sansa basically um, removing what could be an outside threat once the battle's done. But 
we don't get any indication that this is happening yeah. from the showrunners because they don't give us any conversations where we see Sansa or Varys or mm-hmm. uh, John or Arya or um, Davos talking about either um, being behind this idea of structuring this in a kind of a diabolical way. So I think that the showrunners are missing another opportunity where they could build more political espionage in the show that that would have been a very interesting direction to take it if they allowed Sansa to battle plan which I don't think they do like she offered some some advice battle the bastards and John's like oh you don't know anything and they're building up to that's a whole separate thing about Sansa's characterization would have been a very spicy salsa thing to do to put the Dothraki out there on purpose be knocked out it brings up this idea of like prescriptive storytelling versus um ambiguous storytelling and i agree if there was a scene like even if there's a scene like next week where they start arguing about who's gonna be on the throat like maybe they beat cersei and then sansa's like she's like i put the dothraki out there and everyone's like like you know that kind of stuff could still happen like you know it's not gonna happen like that but like um you know i think there's a and I'm I'm like one of the probably most positive people about Game of Thrones right now, just because I want to love it, and I know everyone loves it here. I just like yes. want I yes. want to like I want to like play devil's advocate and like try to support it, um, which is just how my brain is trying to work right now. Mm-hmm. And like, I I think I think the fact that they they don't tell us characters' motivations is okay, and it just lets us theorize. But the problem is people come up with really awesome theories that are just like better than what the show ultimately throws out for you. Cause they mm. pretty much take a clear march to the end. They go, Hey, we're going to normalize the forces. We're going to do it. And someone's going to win in the end. But like all the cool political underpinnings and theories that are made possible by like the base layer that they lay with the yeah. actual art. That is the show makes the communities around this show. So even the communities that are built up around the show are just as good as the show itself. Like mm-hmm. the experience of being in these communities is what, it's only possible because of what the showrunners give us. Yeah. And what George R. R. Martin gave us in mm-hmm. the books. So, you know, this conversation we're having about like Sansa potentially being a political deviant and all this stuff is like, to me, it's okay. If or that, being very smart. I shouldn't just say the word deviant. Well, I guess like, what I'm saying is it's okay if that doesn't ultimately happen because at least we had the time to think about the fact that it could happen and it was just as enjoyable as an experience. Right. The theorizing is half the fun. Yeah. And, just because, and there's been millions of people around the world that have created awesome theories, and like everyone's slowly getting mad that their theories aren't coming true. So like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that, the masses are. Like, I mean, I guess off. that happened with Lost as well, right? On other shows too, but and it's sort of you sort of touched on it, like this. There might have been just this purposeful evening of the forces, just to make things more interesting. Because if you know the Battle of Winterfell goes better for the. Targaryen Stark Force, then it's, I mean, they march down to King's Landing. Where, where's the Where's the interest? Do you think that? Did you read the books? No, neither have I. So I'm not. But do you think that George R. R. Martin will? You say like the, when he finishes the books, or if he ultimately doesn't, and someone else finishes it for him, which I think is a real possibility. That yeah. happens in big fantasy novels a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Like there's Robert Jordan's like the Wheel of Time series is like fifteen books in the last four written by like his understudy huh. hmm. like brandon sanderson and now he's doing his own series of books and all this stuff so it's like you, 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 that kind of thing could happen you know i don't know sure but do you think so you think you think like the main points will be there and then 
ultimately like he will decide not to even the forces and the battle will be different like there could there could basically be a potentially completely different like the night king isn't even from what i understand and i know right you know the He's night not king the isn't even in the books what the night king is called like the knight's king and he's like a random guy that like through overthrew the night's watch and like married or like had sex with a white walker right, there's and like, like these, there's like a baby like this plot is like legend. not even like part of the books really <laughs> yeah. yeah the white walker power structure seems to be more decentralized there's no like hmm. night king yeah <laughs> so it's I more mean, of just a force or an idea it's like right. a, it's like an idea like directed it seems like a hive mind or something it's okay. like an evil like there's no there's like well the book hasn't been really yeah this part hasn't been written yet from what i understand from, from the forums right. on the internet like the personification of like good versus evil and all the stuff like there's there is less personification of evil it's more of like an evil that mm-hmm. is out there mm-hmm. yeah so, so like the what you're talking about the divergent from the source material is like so vast like it's almost going to be the way the books end is going to be like a completely separate reinterpretation of this story even if the same exact ending is similar mm-hmm. like maybe the same person ends up on the throne yeah i think that's only, gonna be state and that's like yeah. the only similarity mm-hmm. <laughs> right i think that's gonna happen the big moves are gonna be the same i think the white walkers are gonna be defeated at winterfell in the books and that it's say those two things are true white walkers defeated at winterfell someone else ends up on the iron throne like this like northern grab to grab a zombie grab one of the white walkers and bring them south like, yeah there's no, no way that she's gonna write that the right books. i think a lot of things have been written around because you know the the book has these other forces and characters that play into things that you know at this point they just don't have that in place and they don't have time to establish them mm-hmm. like there's another like a fourth gray joy with right. his own forces like doing young this. griff or like lady stone art there's always like other things right. that aren't even in the yeah right and those the are black fire rebellion right and there's yeah, you're like, saying euron has like magic right he's the dragon horn right the dragon horn thing that's probably going to be how he that kills the like second dragon versus the giant crossbow out on the ship, mm-hmm. um, or his crossbow is a reinterpretation of the dragon horn that, from the books. That's probably what it is. Yeah. Like the big moves are going to be the same. It's mm-hmm. just the a lot of the frustration is the things that are these mid level or small level moves, and it's like he hasn't George R. R. Martin hasn't decided exactly how it's going to happen, so he left that up to the showrunners. I mean, they had to wrap up show only things i mean they had Arya. they decided to have Arya kill the night's king um which you know personally i enjoyed but yeah so did i yeah. that was a great moment in cinematic history i don't care how she got down to that the night king she right. got flown there for all i care yeah. i thought it was very plausible they like build up they did a whole scene showing how like successfully she was navigating like the the white walkers in the mm. in like the mead hall or, or the, yeah. the library or whatever yeah. and then it's like you just like that did enough to allow me to suspend the disbelief that then she somehow like traversed the garden mm-hmm. to get to the Night King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those were good moves. Yeah. Okay. There's two graphics in front of each of you. We should talk about them. Trust. Right. Trust, um, you know, not taking your alliances for granted. I mean, there are lessons in history. There are lessons in life. It's like, you know, take care of your alliances, cultivate these things treat people well and you know make sure that your enemies aren't going to be able to treat them better so are you making a periodic table taxonomy of of uh, like what is an example of one of these like string alliances i mean you know the show starts off with this mega alliance of or just this 
bond of peace that's between the seven kingdoms. Uh-huh. And, you know, it goes through all these iterations and gradually okay. the Targaryen-centered alliance builds up forces and the Lannister-centered alliance loses forces. And, I mean, the Starks lose allies. Um, they make serious mistakes. For- forces fragment. But all these... Um, I mean, all these moves of people gaining allies and losing them are based on you know usually tangible things in the in the beginning and later on it's just sort of alliances in response to whatever previous backstab like the Tyrells joined Targaryens only because they were backstabbed by the Lannisters and you know Elena has all of her family wiped out um, so, so at the beginning you have Baratheon, Lannister, Stark, Tully, Aaron, Tyrell, Martell. Right. That's right? like this combined world. And do, like, so then they might not like that, each other. They just it's de- they just decided they're not going to attack each other. Well, what's interesting yeah. is like, so in the in the in like the beginning, it's like the Lannisters are clearly the Lannister Baratheon. People forget that right. the Starks and the Lannisters are actually allies in the beginning. Yes. Right. Yes. Because Rob, Robert's Rebellion mm-hmm. was basically the Starks and the Baratheons overthrowing the Targaryens mm-hmm. and then the Lannisters kind of like married into that. And right. Yeah. And once, once that cause fades from their minds, so, like what's left. So here's a question. Do any of the houses actually like each other? Like Baratheon and Stark actually were friends. Like they actually right. like, and then now like the Arya Gendry thing, like unite our houses. Like are any of these, are any of these houses actually, I mean the Aaron's and the Starks seem to like each other. I mean, they, like right. each of these right. Lysa, alli- Aaron, and, yeah. right all of these alliance i mean john aaron like raising ned stark sort of um all of these alliances you mean you have these things by marriage you have these things by common cause um do you think that's going to speak to the end game like are, could there be alliances in place at the end the family i think that actually the, i think the sixth episode is going to deal the last episode is going to deal a lot of that of how how they establish peace again and you know Daenerys is working as stupid as she is for flying, you know, whatever. Um, she gets, you know, Gendry, you know, legitimizes him. And now there's a new Baratheon and like maybe the people take him up and she has a guaranteed allied kingdom. Um, I mean, that's an intelligent thing to do. Stannis was about to do that with Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering when this is all said and done, like, like who's gonna go to their like niece's wedding and actually have a good time? All right. Like I want I want to see, see a scene like that where like okay, say there's like a wedding between like a lowly, like a lower Martell and uh, like a, a Baratheon, and uh-huh. like who actually comes to that wedding and like has a good time and has some wine and talks like the land like obviously the land is going to kill, but like is there some Targaryen? Well, there's not many Targaryens left, but say there was a Targaryen like Danny was there like having a good time, you know. But like, or she's not there just. Is for she ever going to have a good time? Like, like, I just want people to like go to their kids' soccer game and have a good time, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, but like, so clearly the Lannisters have been al- aligned as the big bad, and that was always the case. Yeah. Well, Night King was the big bad, small bad, as far as houses go. Mm-hmm. But um, who's the strong bad? Strong bad. Isn't that like an animated? Stronger. Home wanna. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the poop smith in his natural habitat. <laughs> but is <laughs> that's good. Is um, but but if you really think about it, like there's really nothing wrong with the Lannister family. It's just Cersei. So 
Like right. If he got rid of Cersei, that like squirrely guy who blew up the dome and the mountain, then that's really the evil powerhouses. Right. It's you know the ability of these hero figures to rally their forces together, and that goes back to you know the knowledge is power, power is power. Who's running the show? How do they decide who's running the show? Power resides where men re- believe it resides. All those sort of things. So with with this with the graphic that you've created, you're are you taking the stance that really these shifts aren't because people are buying each other out or um, like convincing people to join them? It's really people are moving between these different groups because they got backstabbed. Yeah. Right. And Later on in the show, that's what's happening. Yeah. yeah, and I'm gonna take this a few steps further and the the final graphic that'll appear will sort of instead of just having these hyphens between the houses it'll show like okay how are they aligned Mm -hmm. like how did this Mm. you know mega alliance form was it you know with the one at the beginning of the show it was common cause um and later on you've got this the targaryen mega alliances because most of them got backstabbed by the lannisters and the common cause of Fighting the, fighting night king. the night king right yeah and <clears throat> yeah once you get into season eight you've got you know the starks joined the targaryen alliance because of the night king yeah i mean i'd be very curious to see the breakdown of what's causing shatterings and what's right. causing alliances well, right. it's mostly out of it's mostly out of who do you who do you hate the most and right the other guy yes. like the tyrells are a good example with high garden mm-hmm. and Elena. like they've changed more she, times than anybody pretty much right really? like marjorie was married to Joffrey. Mm-hmm. She, she was married to Renly Baratheon or, first. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So she's, Marjorie's a piece that they get, she's a pawn, right? Or how can we get our house position, right? So then the land of Tyrell is in King's Landing, the Lannisters, all buddy-buddy. And mm-hmm. then obviously it starts going south because Cersei blows up the Sept with Marjorie inside. Yeah. And But all along, like we find out that Elena poisoned Joffrey. Yes. So all along, she never really actually cared. It's just the game. It's the Game mm-hmm. of Thrones, right? right? So then the Tyrells immediately are sitting in Dragonstone, or Lana's sitting in Dragonstone mm-hmm. with Daenerys. So it's like, who killed my niece? Now I'm going to go to their enemy. But like, I just, and that's such a, it's such a ruthless world. And that's just the game. That's the Game of Thrones. And I'm like, I'm just hoping that someone can find a friendship in this thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, there's like, always, there's going to be a scene at the Ned end where Robert like, friendship mm-hmm. style. where like Sam Jr. is going to be kicking a soccer ball in Winterfell. <laughs> like that's going to happen. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah like, you know, kids. Well, that's one of the things that George R. R. Martin said from the very beginning. Um, I read a, I read an article on the ringer, which has great Game of Thrones coverage. I don't know if you've seen it. It had his original okay. outlines from the early nineties. Mm. Oh really? And it's a general, it's, he said it was, um, his pitch to his publisher was that it's a generational story about five characters. Mm-hmm. It's about Jon Snow, Arya, Bran, Daenerys, and Tyrion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are the five kids. They were younger in the beginning. Right. So he, le- he, he very interestingly leaves Sansa, Cersei, and Jaime out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a story about how these, the Stark kids and then Jon being the, the, the kind of right. wild card, Danny and Tyrion, how the youngest kind of, or these isolated younger kids kind of, tr- kind of are the, are, are right. They're not in power in their families. Yeah. They're not a part of these. They're not the ones making the decisions about these alliances right. that are all happening over top of their heads. Mm-hmm. And now once a lot of these people have died out and now this end game is their chance to realign all these alliances and like mm-hmm. from what they've learned yeah, and what they as, as a person like, for example, Tyrion's a good example. There's a lot of theories out there on the internet that he's actually 
trying to help Cersei, which maybe in like the his subconscious he he doesn't want everyone to die in his family, but he also recognizes that she's a monster. But like, I don't think that like like for for instance, Tyrion might want to be the head of the Lannister family and actually keep the Lannister idea alive, even though he hates what he what the Lannisters have uh-huh. done to him. But he also acknowledges the fact that he wouldn't be where he is without the Lannisters yeah. family. So it's like, how does he? Tyrion, more than anyone, has seen all these things happen, mm-hmm. and he can decide, what, no matter what has happened with the rest of the family throughout history, he can then potentially decide if Jaime and Cersei both die, for instance, what happens with that big L, capital L.A., Yeah, what happens with that for the rest of the next century. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting choice by by George R. R. Martin in the, in the books and in the, in ultimately in the show, is that, like, um, you know, these singular kids to not weren't kids in the beginning he was like drinking having sex in the first episode these like (laughs) these younger people to older people how they can take stock and then make a decision for themselves Mm -hmm, hopefully mm -hmm. if if the world if the breaking of the wheel actually happens right did you learn anything did you learn anything by seeing everyone in your family die like that kind of thing Hmm. yeah all right so (laughs) so one of the one of the many um, investigations i did was um the stark family members and then Mm -hmm. who was going north and who was going south and the relation to distance from Winterfell mm-hmm. in the south is a little out of scale. But basically, the center line right here is the location of Winterfell and north to the wall and then south to the or south mm-hmm. and farther away from all the other areas. Yeah. And the interesting thing that I, and I was trying to figure out okay, when they got back together and when what that meant to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just I think we forget that like literally in the first episode, they or in the second episode, too, they all just split. Yeah. Part ways. All the siblings. Right. right. Everyone in the family. <clears throat> yeah. And only, um, so Ned, Ned goes south, Sansa goes south, Arya goes south, right? Cat um, uh, waits a little bit, and then she ultimately starts going on this grand tour around trying to mm-hmm. talk to people and figure out what the hell is happening. And at the same time, Rob, Rob is like becoming the man, and he's starting, mm-hmm. and eventually he goes south for his war effort, political campaign, all this mm-hmm. stuff. John immediately goes north of the wall, and he starts his whole, he's, he's like out on his own for a long mm-hmm. time. Right. And Bran and Rickon stay in Winterfell for a little bit, and then they ultimately start just like going north and doing mm-hmm. some doing some stuff, and and then basically like um, there's this this kind of tiered system of how this family who ultimately lives or dies, what happens basically. Mm-hmm. So like obviously the the adage that if if the Stark Lord goes south, they die, right? That mm-hmm. happens to Ned. Right. It also happens to Rob. Happens to the Ned father. Right. Yeah. Right. And their first for the first three seasons, there's the older. This gets back to the generational conversation mm-hmm. we were just having. The older, the Ned, Cat, and Rob, they get involved in the political rigmarole. They go mm-hmm. south, and ultimately they just like wind up dying, which is a thing that charges the other siblings to become their own people. Arya mm-hmm. goes off right. on her path to Bravos. Sansa sees that, but she stays in King's Landing mm-hmm. and gets the political savvy. John is already off on his own, but, you know, eventually he hears about it. Mm-hmm. And um, Bran and, and Rickon, which feasibly were the ones that were going to carry on the Stark name in Winterfell, right. um, start to have this new weight on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. So, like, when it's a really, you know, to get back to the generational point, like, these, these, these characters that were there in the beginning that were supposed to carry on mm-hmm. this... this uh, happy alliance of the seven kingdoms right are ultimately ousted which kind of starts mm-hmm. this realigning throughout and all the start kids are it's the main thing of the story all the start kids are 
having very specific, unique experiences, mm-hmm. which is like, it's almost like the Avengers, like giving them all superpowers. Right. right? Basically, like yeah. Arya becomes a no-faced killer. Mm-hmm. Sansa becomes the political master, the mm-hmm. Littlefinger character. Mm-hmm. John becomes like the winter hero who's starting to like uncover all these leadership abilities. And Bran becomes like the mystic the mystic um, right. good versus evil power. And Rickon becomes a target. And Rickon, unfortunately, yeah, Rickon just, just becomes uh, a lost character and he gets killed. I mean, he really means nothing to the story. Absolutely. Yeah, he's just there because he's in the books. Basically. Rickon becomes a plot device. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he runs all the way back and gets killed. Should have right. zigzagged. Right there at the <laughs> Battle of the Bastards. Um, but what's interesting is like, it's almost like we were talking about with um, once you leave your, like, so Ramsey Bolton obviously overtakes their home. So when they're mm-hmm. all gone, it's like, we were talking about with Lord of the Rings and like the Shire getting taken over. And all this yeah. Stuff. So like when they're all gone, someone, some small bad has to come in and take your home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can, once you come back as a new superhero, you can reclaim it. Right. Like yeah. Bran mm-hmm. is Dr. Strange, like all the, you know, whatever, uh-huh. blah, blah, blah. Like John's Tony Stark, like all this, you know, whatever. So, but like, um, and that, and that, I think that storytelling device of, um, making Winterfell a place that the the viewers really hold dear mm-hmm. in the beginning. This really awesome. That's the only time that the kid, people are going to their kids' soccer games is at Winterfell episode one. They're yeah. having a good time. Like yeah, they're know, watching they're, everybody like yeah. shoot and shoot yeah, archery. Just, hey, and so. good, good job, Arya. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. Nice family like sitcom, right? And then like because we get that glimpse of possible happiness, we always hold it yeah. hold it dear to us, right. even when they're all gone. And then it gets amplified when it's taken and Ramsey like re- especially because Sansa becomes back into the Ramsey yeah. equation it becomes this real place of terror mm-hmm. and then it's a it's reclaimed with the hope that it can become a family element again but we all know it's another kind of station for war for the Night King mm-hmm. to, to then become another place of battle and now everyone is leaving it again other than Bran under the weirwood tree and Sansa there as like a you know She's going to be the... Like the Warden of the North. But her focus mm-hmm. is still like to this... Everyone's still focusing on this battle to the South. Right. Which ultimately is, will John break the, the wheel of southern of Northern rulers going South and not dying? Mm. Um, and there's actually a theory that John is going to refound the Night's Watch and go be a hermit. I've heard this theory. I actually <laughs> like that one a lot. Oh, back up back up North? Yeah, he'll let, he'll let Danny do her thing and be like, all right, man, I'm going North. I'm I think that's what he should do. And, yeah. yeah. So the, I guess this is just, and this graphic doesn't really tell you anything you don't know. It's just me kind of trying to say, trying to kind of map out these unique experiences. And I want to make another version of it. Right, it's clear. interesting visually, yeah. Yeah, that says like, John, you know, John had these very like rigid kind of experiences like of, of, of him just pushing through and pushing through and pushing through. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Sansa was more stagnant but she was like seeing things around her and like taking it in. And mm-hmm. now they're all utilizing these skills like later in the, and Arya obviously utilized her skill in a very great yeah. way of, of like killing the Night King, but they all went through like tremendous trauma, tremendous pain. I mean, with some high points, you know, mm-hmm. like John and Egret or Arya mm-hmm. making a friend with the hound, even though it was really hard. But like, um, I, I just think, you know, as a storytelling element, like the Stark children coming back, obviously is one of the main storytelling elements of the whole story. But mm-hmm. I think it, the way the showrunners did it was actually, in the way that George R. R. Martin structured it, was a very, you know, really unique and successful way. So, so if we were to follow these characters to their kind of natural conclusions, if it's John, John's going to go south and, and help Danny reclaim King's Landing. Maybe he'll go back up north because he feels this kind of 
like necessity to Mm -hmm. be at watch like the benjin character yes uncle benjin kind of Mm -hmm. yeah that he's that he's that he'll just return to the wall then i think that leaves winterfell to sansa and and if we follow the logic that sansa really strategically placed the dothraki and removed them from the equation that then strengthened the winterfell force i think that makes her kind of it places her in a very strong political position for the warden of Winterfell to then say to Danny, hey, you're in this strange land and you don't have any forces left. Consider us your forces. And then she gets to retain Winterfell. Danny right. retains Daenerys, King's Landing. If Daenerys loses her last dragon, like Sansa's got the upper hand. Exactly. So then we have Arya. And if we're going to this last battle, Arya's strength is is espionage and mm-hmm. and spy versus spy and and assassination. So we're probably going to see a scenario where Arya engages the final battle as this like knife in the back, a series of knife in the mm-hmm. back moves. Mm-hmm. Um, Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Arya. <clears throat> Requiescat in pace. What happens the brand then? Well, that's an issue. That's a, that's a whole other thing we can get into, but I, I want to know Bran's backstory more. The, the fantasy Br- Bran is like the world balancer fantasy element, which we w- mm. which that's the biggest mistake in my mind of the showrunners is they haven't explained the purpose of the Three Eyed Raven. Really, they just said he the Night Night King wants to kill him, and he's mm. trying to balance the history of man. Like right. I want he's a like twenty the minute of the scene. world. Yeah, I want a twenty minute Bran flashback scene <laughs> with him jumping through worlds and like Doctor Stranging the world. You know, mm-hmm. like um, but yeah, right. So what what would his like mm. primary could he be any of any use? Is he kind of moving the puzzle pieces to into King's Landing? Is he actually the one that's crafting this? Like, yeah, and, and has the Three Eyed Raven always been doing this? Mm. And I've, now I've, you know he's the one. I've enjoyed it. that theory, but I don't see it moving in that direction. Yeah, in unfortunately, the past couple episodes. Yeah, yeah. Like, where where's the Citadel? Like the place that Sam went with Old, all of the old right. Right. Was the it? extreme southwest. It's like, the yeah. It's the green. It's the green. It's yeah. below that. The old town. Below okay. That. Yeah, below that. So, so like, would Bronn end up somewhere? Like head, there, headmaster or something, and be this kind of. <laughs> or he's fa- the clock himself. <laughs> yeah, but like, would we see? Say, like, uh, is it Bran or Bran? Bran. Bran. Bran is the is. Oh, uh, the the mercenary guy. guy. God, yeah. I hated that scene. Oh, yeah. that was kind of a weird scene. Random tavern. They just walk in. <laughs> like, like what uh, are you? yeah. How right, get- Yeah. Anyway, but I mean, like, I could see say Bran going south with Sam. And then Bran and Sam and Gilly all stay and Bran at, at the Sam at, uh, and Gilly. <laughs> there was a rhythm. It's a family. <laughs> but so that's the, the question. Couple, but yeah. As as long as these primary character and Tyrion as the and Tyrion and Danny as the other two as long as mm-hmm. the primary characters stay true to their nature and mm-hmm. they make decisions that one could reasonably expect them to make. I hope I hope the showrunners stick with that as their as yeah. their primary motivation. Right. I'd I'd hope that all these dumb things happening along the way are just to get things where they need to be. Mm-hmm. But we'll find out. Yeah. All right. Um do we want to talk predictions? Yeah. Let's let's, let's roll into like final predictions then. Okay. Um let's let's how's this for a fun thing? Let's um each say one what we would like to happen, mm. two what we can reasonably expect, uh and three what's the weirdest direction it could take. I could start. Sure. Okay. What I would like to happen in that order. Yeah. Like actual weird. Yeah. Okay. What I would like to happen is for Bran and the fantasy element to have a really major role 
in the way this ends. And I mm-hmm. wish I would like that's that's um, and then that doesn't really lend itself to a lot of the fan service stuff that's been happening. But I, w- I really, really, really want to have like a 20 minute long brand <laughs> scene where he's warging into things where he's like seeing the past, where he's like pushing the, if, if in fact he is pushing things into place, mm. I want to see that happen. Yeah, I want to understand much to do. I want to understand what he's been doing. And I want, I want that to affect the mm-hmm. battle, not in a weird novel way. I just like, I just want to know. Mm-hmm. And I want the show to tell us basically that Bran, he, he is still re- like wrestling with his own, powers and he mm-hmm. i've even heard a theory that the mad king went mad because bran went back i in like time, that theory yeah. went, went back in time and he like didn't really know what he was doing and mm-hmm. kind of fucked things up oh like hodor yeah and he like fucked up the mad king and bran started all of this oh shit. so if we like had that for instance like happen in like a flashback mm-hmm. and then he like pulls danny in and like shows her and he's like i did this this it wasn't your dad's fault like crazy shit like i, w- I would love crazy shit to happen mm-hmm. fantasy wise oh, i like that a lot time travel wise weird that yeah that's not a specific ending mm-hmm. i'll get into what I th- but like if there's more and more and more of that mm-hmm. which i don't think they'll do because it's not it's all they got, sure they got three hours to do all that <laughs> yeah that's what i want to happen i want to know i want brand to be a crucial part of it so mm-hmm. um what i think will happen is i think cersei will die mm-hmm. tomorrow that is because it's mother's day <laughs> and, and, Tyr- and Tyrion killed tywin on father's day yep oh and, yeah yep um it's like I, a, it's like um poetry i want i want i think jamie's gonna go back um he's gonna say he's gonna be on Cersei's side but he's actually gonna go back to kill her i think right now he believes that he's going to be with cersei because he's kind of having this psychoactive thing going on i think on. he's going back to kill her i think he's going back to kill her too but i think maybe he like will figure that out along the way like he'll like have four weeks to himself on the road i think he's already realized it but and he just said that shit to Brienne to make hey, it. This stay. is my prediction. Okay, sorry, no, your sorry. Prediction. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think Jamie's actually fucked up and psychotic, okay. and then he'll actually on the way realize he was whoa. He's, what am I doing? And he'll kill Cersei, um, and then so I think him and or Arya will have like a spot, like a someone will get to Cersei individually and kill her. Mm-hmm. She won't die in battle. I think um, what I think will happen is that Danny will ultimately win. Her and John will have. Um, they'll agree on some things, but ultimately have a tiff, and John will be removed from the the ruling class. And I I, I like the theory that he'll kind of leave Danny to rule King's Landing, and he'll go away and be like like self sacrifice, not sacrifice, but go to the north, do the Night's Watch thing. Mm-hmm. I, I like that theory, where he's like, "This is where I was meant to be." He'll go back with Ghost and all that stuff. Um, and that's why that's how I think it's gonna end. I don't know. Um weirdest 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 way it could end weirdest way it could end weirdest way it could end but potentially be tearing and turning on everyone being on the lannister side but also also killing cersei and then Tyrion ruling the world (laughs) 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 kind of like that too (laughs) do you want me to go uh go for it yeah okay um, okay, so the the way that I would like it to mm-hmm. end, and this is a toss-up because I think the way that I would like it to end would either be either the most wholesome or the weirdest way. Uh-huh. So I think really instead of going through three, I'm just going to divide it into two. 
um, the way I'm thinking about it ending in a wholesome way or ending in just the, the most weirdest way possible. The wholesome way I think is that John is going to help Danny reclaim the throne. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to kill Cersei. And then there's going to be a moment where the characters are having a conversation of what they should actually do with the throne. And they'll actually just destroy the throne itself. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that like the symbolic scene, yeah, break the wheel is going to mm-hmm. be about, breaking the iron throne so i just see some kind of like wholesome like defeat and then this like nice conversation and then they break the they break the throne and then like everybody lives happily and ever ever after (laughs) that's kind of the wholesome ending Uh i'm thinking what i want to happen is for the girl that just beat the shit out of Arya when she was blind Mm -hmm. to have actually murdered Arya when she was in bravos and that the girl has actually been secretly pretending to be Arya over the entire course of her return to Westeros and that um, she is going to um, murder the Hound at at some point during the siege of uh, King's Landing and she is going to about to be murdering Cersei when Jaime comes in and just like heaves her in half of a sword and so it's going to be revealed that Arya has actually been this like secret other person and right at the moment when because the whole mission of the no many face god is to remove evil from the world Mm -hmm. they've said it Mm -hmm. in a couple of occasions and i think that like apprentice is going to get within one inch of murdering cersei and then jamie's just going to like cut her in half I like the Arya's dead mm. theory. I mean, I don't. That's pretty good, actually. I don't and know. and then like, somebody else is gonna come in, and then Jamie's gonna end up defending Cersei, and I think Jamie and Cersei are gonna both end up like tragically like dead. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and then everybody else will roll in, and then we'll have the happy ending like hmm. equation. Right. Okay. Let's see, the way I'd like it to end, I, you know. This is corny along your. This is along your lines. Um, I'd like to see them establish a democracy and abolish the monarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, America. Um, but it's it's obvious that this cycle is just caused by people be having absolute power. Um, you know, Danny's sort of forgotten about the speaking of things she forgot about breaking the wheel, like she was telling Tyrion. Mm. Oh, she's like, I want the Iron Throne. Uh, that's my Danny impersonation. <laughs> Danny DeVito? <laughs> Charlie, I want the Iron Throne for myself. <laughs> gonna make it a little smaller. Yeah. What I think is going to happen, I yeah, I think that I agree with the Jamie and Cersei are going to die together. I think John and Daenerys, or I think Daenerys is going to lose her last dragon, and yeah. John and, Dana- and that's going to force Daenerys to do like a William and Mary thing with John Mm -hmm. and they're going to rule together. They're going to need to come up with another throne um, to fit the both. Well, she's small and he's not that big, but anyway, um, get on short jokes are too much. I hate them every time. It's not that short. It, just but every single episode, they go like, "Oh, I love the man that was taller." Or, or like, it's like, what's the, <laughs> right. what is the what's who's benefiting from these like, jokes? Right, Women. Like, he's. <laughs> they're not funny. Yeah. Make He's, it once. We, like, like we've we've each got like an inch on the guy, so it, it, it stings. <laughs> yeah, it, short guy. <laughs> right, and she's like five one. But anyway, um, what was it? Oh yeah, the weird thing. Here's here's my yeah. Here's the microphone. Here's here's my 
most oddball idea for what's going to happen is things are they're going to defeat Cersei things are going to settle down and then out of the west conquistadors show up with gunpowder and wreck everybody that would be such a good ending oh shit oh my god (laughs) like the last scene yeah oh man (laughs) I would love that none of this fucking matters because people you know yeah people fucking show up and that Wreck would be everybody's a shit. Crazy critique on the world. Yeah. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Colonialism and all None that. None of it matters. Like apoc- you know, like Apocalypto. Have you seen Apocalypto? No. There's a scene at where, the very end. Yeah, I've read about it. Yeah. There's like all like because you think everything is like so important, and then like in the end, you realize there's oh my god, there's another world out there. This is a globe. Like the conquistadors just show up. Yeah. You, you see like the ships, mm-hmm. and the person is just like looking out over the rain, like the forest. And they're mm-hmm. like, what the fuck? Yeah. And it was like Seven Samurai. Like yeah. The, every, the entire wait. Oh, okay, got it, got it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the movie Seven Samurai. Like the, 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 I thought you about The Last Samurai, which also is the case. Yeah, Last Samurai as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they both take place in that moment where it's the turn from sword culture to, mm-hmm. to gun yeah. culture. Samurai mm-hmm. to minigun. You know. mm-hmm. Man, that's a good one. Mm. We'll see what happens. They're not smart <laughs> enough to come up with it. What if the last scene to is... flatter myself. What if the last scene is George R. R. Martin in bed with the funny hat and he goes... <gasps> Right, right. I've got to write this down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that honestly would be like you know, one of those nightcaps on with the little puffy. Ball. Wakes up next to Bob what? Newhart. Yeah, <laughs> the Bob Newhart show. What? If, what if they like literally had the end credits and then like like in Avengers, like they have they would have that last the stinger, thing yeah. of just oh, like George R. R. Martin waking up. Do you think how mad do you think people would be? Just like, what if he was like, "That's my only stipulation for the show, is I have to wake up oh, on the last yeah. episode." Mm-hmm. Oh God. Yeah. Or they all start dying and is them just walking through church doors into the light. Oh, my God. And then they meet Sawyer <laughs> on the other <laughs> side. And then it goes lost. Yeah. Man. Yeah. All right. Well, two more episodes. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. All right, gentlemen. To cars. Hey, everyone. Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Fillick, and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on Bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the table sessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.